0: The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Andres Ritt. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. In today's episode, we are joined by Dr. George Patanakis to talk about statistics and study design in ART research. Dr. Patanakis is the medical director at Reproductive Medical Associates of Florida, as well as an assistant professor at the University of Central Florida College of Medicine. He completed his bachelor's in electrical engineering at Rutgers, which he followed by two master's degrees from Columbia University, and he then received his doctorate with distinction in electrical engineering. Since that was clearly not enough, Dr. Patanakis then went on to attend medical school at Rutgers, where he earned several awards, after which he did his OBGYN residency at Thomas Jefferson University and his REI fellowship at the NIH. He has published several articles on the topic of the challenges and common pitfalls of assisted reproduction research in journals such as Human Reproduction and Fertility and Sterility. Dr. Patanakis, thank you so much for joining us today. I am so, so glad to have you on to talk about this all-important topic.
1: Thank you for having me here today and uh, for this opportunity.
0: We wanted to talk to you a little bit about some of the most common statistical issues with uh, with papers in our field, both from the perspective of the authors as well as from the perspective of the reader and interpreting those papers correctly. I know you've written a couple of papers on on the topic, and I wanted to ask you what do you think are the most common statistical problems in in research in the field of assisted reproduction?
1: So there, are, there are generally a few. Um areas that uh, come up over and over again in terms of statistical uh, pitfalls uh, in the field of uh, assisted reproduction. Um, and we'll kind of just go through uh, s- some of the major ones that we see. And some are happening just because of the way the field is in and of itself. For example, with the, the, the first one that we'll be discussing will be multiplicity or basically uh, many uh, outcomes that can be uh, generated in a uh, study. Uh, this is uh, because in the field of ART, um, there are a lot of different variables that we collect during the process: number of eggs retrieved, number of mature, number of embryos uh, made, how many of them make it to blastocyst. Um, you know, aneuploid versus euploid. Uh, miscarriage, uh, positive pregnancy tests, you know all those, and you know with a single um, ivF cycle, you can collect all that data and then you know a researcher can potentially use all of those uh, different outcomes and test their hypotheses you know with uh, with those outcomes the The problem is is you know with so many um, outcomes, you run into the problem of multiplicity, which is essentially that by doing so many comparisons, so many statistical comparisons, that is, uh, you are bound to find a so-called statistically significant result. And uh, therefore, it's unclear if, you know, that is uh, reality or just a statistical anomaly that you're seeing. Um, So in many cases, it's, you know, best to limit a, a study to the major Uh, outcomes that you want to look at and in the case of ART research for most studies but not but not all uh, you know kind of the end result would be something like live birth or even uh, just sustained implantation rate that if that's you know something that uh, makes makes sense now in some other uh, study designs or those that are uh, specifically looking at lab interventions Um, initially it may make more sense uh, to, um, you know, look at different outcomes, but, uh, those are, those are probably the ones that most studies should be looking at. And, uh, you know, so that's, that's really one of the major, uh, issues that we find in a, a lot of, uh, ART research, uh, studies, uh, then the question is, what can you do with it? You know, can you correct for it? So can you still keep all these, you know, outcomes that you're looking at and, um, somehow, uh, correct for doing all these uh, different comparisons. You can, you can, you know, do it with various uh, methods looking at um, or uh, trying to account for the multiple comparisons and essentially taking your uh, threshold for statistical significance and modifying that to um, include so many different outcomes, something like a Bonferroni correction, which would be a very strict way of doing it, which is uh, essentially taking whatever threshold Um, value for uh, alpha or type one error, and kind of making it that many times tighter, uh, as many, you know, outcomes as uh, you uh, have. But sometimes that may lead to other issues, such as not recognizing that a, a significant effect exists, you know, when it, you know, truly does, simply because things have become so much more strict with the statistical threshold.
0: It's interesting, you you mentioned kind of changing the threshold of significance. Let's start with the very beginning in terms of, of what would be kind of, you know, research statistics. And one of the things most people look at is, is the p-value. Could you tell us kind of in a, in a dummy explanation, what does it actually mean to begin with?
1: So the p-value is, is a uh, quantity that uh, many times is um, really misunderstood. Uh, people use the Uh, threshold of 0.05 is, you know, uh, kind of this holy grail of, uh, if you can achieve that, that means that your uh, research study is uh, successful, and whatever you're seeing is true. But then if you get 0.051, that's it, it's all wrong. You know, so, um, and and that's not really quite the way that it works. Uh, The uh, p-value from, and we'll start with the more technical point for it, it basically is saying, what is the probability that you'll see, Um, data that is at least as extreme as the data that you currently are observing, if the null hypothesis of the study uh, were actually true. Okay, so that's basically saying, what are the chances that you're seeing these findings in the data purely due to chance? That is, there's no true underlying reason for the data to be that way. But from a statistical standpoint, It it just so happened. It's uh, kind of like when you have a a coin that you're flipping. Uh, If you flip the coin four times and it's a fair coin, it's a a coin that has an equal probability of getting heads versus tails. There's a chance that you will see four heads flipped. You know, at the you know same time. But the chance of that happening is much lower than seeing, let's say, two heads versus, you know, two tails, or even three heads versus, you know, one tail. And the p-value would tell you essentially, what are the chances that you would see four heads flipped, um, given that the coin is truly a fair coin, it's not a weighted coin. That's really what the p-value is uh, saying.
0: Right. And uh, you were mentioned earlier for a second there that it's often interpreted kind of as a yes or no thing, as a binary answer, in which we kind of tend to regard the p-value as, like you said, if it's less than zero point zero five, then my study was not only my my you know null hypothesis was rejected, but also my study was successful. What what are your thoughts on the way we use p-value or the way it's kind of commonly regarded as a measure of success of the study, and perhaps a little bit more importantly? How nuanced is it to actually look at a p-value in terms of less or more than 0.05, or rather, let's look at the actual number and what that means?
1: So, um, you know, in my opinion, and I think that uh, it's, it's true of uh, many of the journals uh, too now, uh, is that looking at simply the p-value doesn't, doesn't make so much sense. You should still always include a p-value in your analysis uh, since it is a fundamental value, but really, what we what makes more sense is looking at what is the uh, kind of like something like the ninety five percent confidence interval uh, that's there, because that would allow the reader to get a better grasp of how close the data was to you know showing this effect. That if it didn't, or um, also that if it did show an effect, let's say the you know it met the magic. Uh, 0.05 number, you know, really how closely did it, did it just barely make it, which is probably the case if it was 0.05 or, or, you know, does it, does it make like clinical sense, um, you know, that, that it's a a good finding and really you get that much more from a 95% confidence interval, because that's also going to include how more or less how the data was spread. You know, too. So, um, you know that if you're just barely crossing the critical value, you know this is it's it's close. You know, uh, and a p value, you know, is like you're saying in many cases interpreted in a binary way, which which doesn't make any sense. It it just you know what what is the real difference between zero point zero four nine versus zero point zero five one? It's basically a you know two percent uh, difference in the probability that you're seeing this just due to chance. Okay, so. You know that that doesn't mean you should throw away anything that has a p value that's zero point zero five one. It also doesn't mean that you should accept anything as 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 truth to change clinical practice if the p value was zero point zero four nine
0: right right and, and perhaps it should be i think it should be stressed too that it's important to report the p value no matter if it was significant or not, right. We are very oftentimes see in tables and such. Things like NS instead of a p-value, just to say it was non-significant, or like you're saying, it, it has nothing to do if it was 0.8, or if it was 0.52, right?
1: Correct. Yeah, I, I think that the value should always be reported there. Sometimes when the values get very small, like under uh, one ten-thousandth or, or one one-thousandth, uh, then you know putting less than you know may make a bit more sense because then you're running into potentially the numerical uh, issues of the computation itself, and not you know it it it, it takes no further meaning if it's going to happen one in ten thousand or one in you know four hundred thousand. Uh, but certainly that if the p value um, you know was found to be greater than zero point zero five, uh, I still uh, do prefer to to see what it what it actually was. If it was 0.8 or was it 0.07, You know, there's there's differences there. But again, the quantities that will you will give you more intuition into what the data truly, like I like to say, feels like. It's going to be your 95% confidence intervals uh, there. And then also things like the number needed to, to treat or number needed to harm, those put it into a different perspective uh, also, because that's, that's essentially what the study is um, you're aiming to do. Like if we do this intervention, how many patients do we have to do it on to see this beneficial effect or on the flip side, this uh, harmful effect? You know, so um, all those other ways of representing the same exact data, you know, lead to better clarity for the person reading the research study. Uh,
0: absolutely. And l- let's go back for a second. Let's leave the p-value aside and go back to some of these statistical problems that we were talking about. You you were talking about multiplicity and kind of the problem that we have almost too much data to actually make sense of it and how the data can confound the results because there is so much would you say it is better to choose just one outcome or is it better to perform a more complete study kind of including all possible outcomes and then adjust? Um, How would you go about designing a study in the best way if you could kind of design the perfect thing where there are all these things you can possibly look at?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. uh, You know, for that, I think that, and and again, this is nothing, uh, this is more, my personal preference uh, with this, that if you're doing a a study that's, let's say a randomized controlled trial, you really should just have one, one outcome, maybe two in uh, that one that you're looking at, probably one, because you want to power it for a specific uh, outcome. And then all of your, um, all the recruitment and, you know, dropout uh, kind of predictions will be uh, based on all of that. So for a, a randomized Study, you probably want to have only one outcome, and you could always report the other. Um, outcomes there uh, but you know y- that shouldn't be the the focus um, sometimes when you're doing a you know a, a cohort study let's say that's a retrospective and you have all that data and you're looking for uh, ideas to to generate other studies from to basically motivate a randomized control study if if that's a proper design for answering a question uh, then um, looking at multiple outcomes and then potentially adjusting for like the multiplicity um, makes sense too, because in, in that case, that, that study may be offering more of a um, kind of a exploratory type of, you know, kind of goal uh, for it. So, you know, so overall, if I, that if you force me to choose just one, camped to, to um, go with here, I would say you should really just limit things to like one or two um, outcomes and make your, you know, hypothesis based on that, do a good clean study design for that, and then leave it there. But report the other, um, you know, data just so people can can see it, but don't, you know, um, use it as one of your conclusions. Uh, that's, that's, that's probably the the cleanest thing to do.
0: I, I wanted to ask you regarding you were you were talking about powering your study and about kind of choosing, choosing a sample size and designing the whole thing. How important is it to explain when you do write the paper, but when you're designing your study to power it appropriately? And I don't mean that it should be enough, sort of powered enough to detect what you're looking for. But, you know, we, we very often see a study that says we did this and that on 40 women. And, and the question always, you know, crosses your mind, well, why? Why 40? Is it 40 because they walked in through the door? Is it 40 because because that was the plan all along?
1: Um, I, I guess it depends on uh, really how the particular uh, study was, was done. Um, in an ideal world, uh, there's, you know, planning for uh, recruitment uh, for a study based on assumptions of what effect you want to see. So doing the power analysis a priori. Um, you know, that, that's ideal. And for many, uh, randomized control trials that are going to be published in, in your major journals, that's actually required. And that's why trials have to be registered before, uh, they're even uh, conducted to, to keep researchers to that. Um, I think what happens, you know, sometimes in, um, you know that when there's uh, studies that need to be uh, published that weren't done in this more rigorous uh, fashion of looking at a power analysis, it's it's either a they uh, just chose this number out of thin air, um, and and you know then after the fact we'll we'll go back and try to explain you know why they didn't see something or or whatnot. Uh, other things too. Sometimes there's just not enough recruitment, and it's it's been you know, so long of a period of time that it's time to just stop, otherwise the study won't, you know, that, that data won't be uh, disseminated. Um, you know, I think those are probably the uh, things that happen there. I, I I don't think that many of the, you know, that if you look at all the literature out there, uh, that many of those studies do a a good, a priori power analysis there because they usually don't state you know, why they chose a number uh, that's uh, there. I mean, your, your best journals, your uh, randomized control trials that are um, in uh, things like the clinical gov, those are going to have that because they, they have to, and that's really the way that it should be. But I think a lot of studies, they choose a convenient number, um, and, and then they just go with it.
0: Let's, let's talk about another of the of the common issues that you've written about before in in reproductive research, um, the, the issue of age. And age, of course, affects uh, a lot of what we do, and it's so important to to take into consideration in any patient. You've written a little bit about the kind of two different ways people deal with this, the idea of Either stratifying by age group or use some sort of regression model. Tell us a little bit about these these options and and how you see the the issue of adjusting for age. And
1: so, age in ART research is uh, particularly important because we know that uh, age uh, can uh, predict the um, outcomes quite well, probably better than almost almost any other intervention that we have or any other risk factors that that we have for the, uh, couples that are trying to, uh, conceive. Uh, so age is important to adjust for because, because it can certainly confound the, uh, results. And, um, like, like you were saying, there are multiple ways to, uh, kind of take into account age earlier methods and kind of more straightforward methods that would allow, uh, for, for use of, um, you know, kind of more simple statistical tests would, would involve stratification into age groups, which means that you're going to be taking uh, patients that are within a certain um, numbers of years and and grouping them together and doing the analysis on, on that group. And then you take another group of patients in like the next uh, three years age difference and you do the analysis, the same exact analysis on them and you do that for as many groups as you want to construct for it. And, and then you see that if, whatever you are trying to um, test as your hypothesis, you know, does it remain uh, the uh, same outcome throughout the different age groups that would say that, you know, that this intervention works well across all age groups, you know, but let's say in one age group, you you see it, but in another one, you you don't, I mean, there could be multiple reasons for that one, one could be that, um you know, just the success rates are different at one age, and whatever effect size you have from your intervention is is, is so small that it's getting uh, lost in the noise almost of the you know success versus failure in that age group, um, and so that's why you don't see it. Or it or it, it could be something truly that there is a, a dependence on age for something working, you know, uh, in in terms of an intervention. But overall, in most most of what we're looking at in the uh, literature, these days, unless you're trying to present things in a uh, little more easier to digest uh, fashion for the reader, um, you really should be correcting or adjusting for age using one of the more advanced uh, methods, which are well established. These are not um, anything that's cutting edge statistical methods, uh, but using the regression models to adjust uh, for age. So the problem is, um, people in many cases will say that they've adjusted for for age in their uh, studies, but they don't say how they adjusted for age. Now we know that when we look at let's say um, you know embryo aneuploidy versus age, uh, those those graphs of success are not linear, and you know so therefore imposing a linear adjustment for for age. Um, you know, to correct for it when you're looking at some other variable, some some other outcome, is not quite going to be valid if you go over the full age range of people that are being treated for within um, IVF. So, like if you're going from let's say your you know 25 year olds up to your uh, 40 you know four year olds, that's that that curve is not linear. It's it's actually highly nonlinear right. um, in uh, certain areas. And so, whatever your uh, regression model you know chooses as the fit for it it's gonna bias it in one area versus the other and if that happens to be areas where your um, whatever you're uh, testing uh, also has an effect on you may see something that doesn't exist because of the misadjustment for age basically penalizing let's say the younger patients and um, you know kind of boosting up the success of the older patients because of the linear adjustment at, at at some point there's going to be an error because you can only put a straight line to a nonlinear, you know, uh, curve in only so many ways. So really that when you're adjusting for age, particularly when it's across the uh, full age range, you have to do something that's nonlinear to um, give both ends of the spectrum, a proper adjustment. Otherwise you may be missing um, smaller effects in your whatever outcome that you're looking at, uh, or I should say intervention, or you may actually see effects that don't truly exist. So, you know, doing something like modeling age uh, with, let's say, like a piecewise linear curve, meaning that you, let's say, model your age effect from, let's say, 25 up to, you know, 36 with one line, which is probably a pretty good um, idea. Uh, and then you model from, you know, 36 up to, you know, 42 or something with another line, you get a much, much better fit to that curve. And therefore, your adjustment will be more you know, valid and therefore, you know, you truly are adjusting for age. Just saying that you adjusted for age is probably not enough. And, you know, just because you throw it into the um, statistical program and throw age in there as another variable in your model doesn't mean that you're doing it properly. And I think that uh, that's, that's something that we really need to get away from uh, with um, a lot of the uh, ART literature now because we are looking at uh, interventions that have generally a very, very small effect on the outcome compared to age. Therefore, age must be adjusted for very carefully.
0: Absolutely. One of one the things that I wanted to talk to you about, one of the most read phrases that we read a lot in papers is we adjusted or we did a multivariate logistic regression model. Can you give us the, again, kind of the, the dummy explanation? What does this actually mean? And how important is it to interpret this phrase correctly when we're reading a paper?
1: So uh, the multivariate logistic regression model or just multivariate regression, um, there are kind of two ways to interpret it. I I think, strictly speaking, it should mean that there's multiple outcomes when you talk about multivariate, but that's not the general way that it's used. Usually it's used the following way that where you have multiple um, independent variables that you are using to correct for in one outcome that's a binary one. So basically like the logistic part of multivariate logistic regression is that you are looking at uh, binary outcomes like yes or no pregnant, not pregnant, you know, loss, not loss. Um, you know, those like, that's, that's what that means. And then the multivariate, all, although I guess in some circles you may, that may mean multiple outcomes at one time. What I found is in our own, uh, like most of our own literature, it's um, actually multiple independent uh, variables, which is why you're doing the regression in the first place. Basically, you're going to have your intervention of uh, interest as one variable that's that's independent. You may have age as another one, endometrial thickness, let's say, as a you know third variable there. Kind of those things that that's, that's what the multivariate would be. And then what the uh, regression model part of it is, is that you're taking the uh, data points that are there and trying to fit them to a equation that uh, minimizes the amount of errors it makes in predicting the, the outcome. So that's, that's, that's basically what it's doing. It's, it's trying to find the best fit to the data, given that you've chosen these, multiple independent variables if you want to think of it in a way that's not the more mathematical way uh, let's say you had a, um, a a bunch of dots on a piece of paper that look a bit fuzzy but they almost form a straight line and then you take a ruler and you try to find how many of those points are above the line and below the line and you make them visually equal that's kind of your um that's kind of your regression, essentially, in the simplest uh, sense. Just this is happening in um, multiple dimensions and when you're doing uh, a, a fit with multiple variables.
0: Thank you. That was. I think that was a very visual explanation. Although this is a an audio podcast, but I can kind of I can, I can kind of see it the way you're explaining it. And yeah. it, it does make yeah, sense. Yeah. There's
1: there's a whole other you know set of uh, items here that we didn't even get into, which is uh, whether um, uh, things are independent or non-independent, and and that comes up a lot in ART, uh, like with uh, embryos. Uh, so when you get a whole bunch of embryos from a single patient, are those events like outcomes going to be correlated? In many cases, yes, but you know, so, so you have to take that into account uh, that when you're doing most statistical tests, because a lot of the statistical tests that you use, uh, that you learned in medical school, assume that outcomes are independent that each Each right. data point you have is independent, and that 's not necessarily true that when you're looking at embryos that are derived from the same cycle or in the same patient, that can even be extended to other things the if it's the same embryologist that's you know um, performing a procedure on it or I mean like you could take it to all sorts of levels here, <laughs> but uh, there's even you know but there are statistical um, methods that are just devoted to essentially, um, you know, this, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of different things like that, that we run into with, um, particularly in ART research, uh, cause you can do things multiple times and get multiple, um, like embryos with, or eggs or whatever with each, um, you know, cycle.
0: Um- in in general, uh, overall, what 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 proportion of studies that you read suffer from these issues? Is it like there's a couple papers that are not not great from the statistical point of view, or is this a generalized problem? Should we perhaps consider things like including statisticians as reviewers or kind of uh, taking a lot more care with this?
1: Um, I th- I think that this happens uh, quite a bit. Uh, these these days, and in, in terms of the uh, studies that are certainly reviewed, and and actually still persists in some studies that ultimately get uh, published. Uh, but um, one of the reasons I think is you know um, the the use of statistical software has has become um, uh, readily available to like anybody. Essentially, you can you know um, get SPSS or um, any one of these statistical uh, programs fairly easily, particularly that if you're at a university um, and you can just start plugging in numbers. You know, and then it, it doesn't mean that you're getting the right answer just because the program doesn't uh, send a message to you saying, you know, do something different because this doesn't make sense. Um, it will still crunch numbers that um, don't necessarily make, make sense, just like we're saying <laughs> with, the, um, with the adjustment for uh, age. You can really do whatever you want, essentially, uh, and as long as there's numerical stability, it's not going to give you an error. Okay. And so, um, so I think that's one of the reasons why we see it uh, a lot. Uh, But essentially, though, does it make sense to have a a statistician, some of the issue I mean, there there are there are journals that will include a statistician on all reviews, Uh, that can uh, sometimes be it can get away from um, I guess the the point of of what people are, are doing too, because sometimes there's some very nitty gritty details that, in terms of clinical practice, probably don't matter um, at all. Uh, and so, you know, to uh, you know, to torture the, the researchers trying to submit the um, manuscript, <laughs> uh, you know, may not be necessary. Really, what we need is, I think, we need uh, to always have a reviewer that that is a bit more versed in statistics but not necessarily a uh, purely a statistician. You need somebody that's clinically understands the problem and knows where certain assumptions can be made essentially, because then, you know, that's, 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 I think how you get the uh, best of both worlds uh, in that case. But I do think that it is a problem with um, a good number of studies that um, are published or attempted to be published.
0: From that, from that kind of perspective, you know, I think the idea that, sort of, I need to learn statistics better, uh, that kind of thought has crossed everyone's mind. But but of course, the field is enormous. You, know, you look for a master's in statistics, and it's, it encompasses all these things. What would you recommend is a, a good place to start, a resource you would point us to for anybody wanting to better understand just the math behind the papers they write or behind the papers they read?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, looking at the math is probably not necessarily the best way to approach this, at at least from a clinician standpoint, because there's a lot of details with the math that you just don't need to know to understand how it's being used. It's more important to to understand what assumptions need to be met, or how the assumptions, or the uh, requirements, I should say, for a statistical test can be kind of stretched and still give you the still give you a useful uh, answer. Okay, so really knowing, number one, when to use a test in what situation is by far, the most important thing to know in terms of the statistics, you don't need to know exactly how the p-value, let's say, or the 95% confidence interval is calculated at the mathematical level. That's usually what you learn about in a statistics course. And that's why you'll spend tons of time looking up tables and and this and that. That's what the computer program is for. But what the computer program does not know is what assumptions your data has to meet for it to make sense to uh, give you a result that truly represents, let's say, how how extreme the data is compared to the, you know, data you would find if the null hypothesis were, you know, true. That's what the computer does not know. So by knowing what the assumptions are, that's where you get better understanding of the statistics and also how, uh, how you can appreciate better the statistics that are in, you know, papers. So there's one book that I, that I like, and it's a short book. It's a, it's, a, it's a well-written book, in my mind, and somewhat entertaining. Uh, it's called PDQ Statistics, and uh, the, the author of it goes through uh, medical examples uh, for statistics and kind of where things are violated and um, how to interpret certain tests, when to use certain tests. It's not, it, it doesn't get very uh, complicated. Um, you know, but it but it gives you enough to uh, get by with at, at least many of the basic uh, tests, and then also just in terms of study design, because both statistical analysis and study design truly go hand in hand. You right. can't do one in isolation of the uh, other. It 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 just doesn't work well. I mean, that if you don't know what test you want to use in the end for a study, it's you know you can't design it right. You know, it, and those two things just go hand in hand for good study designs. So there, there's also the Lancet series on um, on study design, which I think is also very well written, and and will uh, kind of explain uh, other aspects of study uh, design. Uh, but Overall, you, you need to have a certain statistical foundation that many people will learn or should have learned, uh, at least when they've been in uh, medical school, um, you know, that where they get a brief introduction to. It. And then after that, it, it comes down to, I think, you know, then using a book like PDQ Statistics to, to get a better understanding of the concepts, not of the math, but of the concepts of uh, these statistical tests and then just broadening that by, you know, looking at, I mean, there are, you know, journals like the New England Journal of Medicine or Lancet that, you know, publish many times just these articles here and there on statistics and kind of almost like a, you know, kind of a primer, but at, at a higher level of understanding the statistics, not telling you how to do the math. The math is done by the program. You don't need to know how to do the math. You need to know what assumptions you have to satisfy so the math that the program does makes sense.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. That is that is great advice. Um, Dr. Pat is that is unfortunately all we have time for today, but it's been awesome. I could spend, if you ever want to come back, I could spend another hour talking to you about statistics. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there are some other concepts or statistical, you know, um, ideas that I think can be addressed, you know, with, uh, other, you know, podcasts.
0: We'll definitely do a, do a part two to this. This was great. All right. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Petanakis.
1: Take care. Bye.
0: This has been another episode of Pod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions and all things reproductive medicine. See you next week.